MuggleCast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy hosting plans are now more powerful than ever. Best of all, plans start at just $3.95 a month. And no matter what plan you choose, your site receives 24-7 maintenance and protection in the GoDaddy.com world-class data center. Plus, as a MuggleCast listener, enter code MUGGLE, that's M-U-G-G-L-E, when you check out, and save an additional 10% on any order. Get your piece of the internet at GoDaddy.com. Hello, this is David Heyman, and I'm the producer of the Harry Potter films, and this is MuggleCast. Because we're about to only scratch the surface, this is MuggleCast, episode 214, for November the 20th, 2010. Welcome to MuggleCast episode 214, and oh my goodness, is this a big show. Not only are we talking about the penultimate film in the Harry Potter series, but we are also welcoming MuggleNet's, um, I like to call him a god, I don't think that's too high high of a, uh, of a praise. Richard Reed is joining us this week on the show. Hello, Richard! Hello, everyone. Richard is Scottish. And he stepped in when MuggleNet was on its knees about a year ago, when the site was down for a week. And ever since then, he has um, been a MuggleNet god. So it's great to have you on, Richard. It's great to be here. Yes, and um, our peasants, Eric and Micah, are here too. So hello, peasants. I, I like to think of Micah and I more as serfs, really, living <laughs> off the, the fat of the land. <laughs> <laughs> That's just well, me. we have lots to get to this week, so we will worry about classifying uh, our ranks in the Mugganet Kingdom at a later date. I'm Andrew Sims. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Micah Tannenbaum. And I'm Richard Reed. Mike Tannenbaum, what's going on in the news this week, besides the elephant in the room? Well... And I'm not talking about it, Eric. Although I do make a nice elephant. There was a movie that was released earlier this week, in case you didn't know, Andrew. Right. But other than that... Other than that, what's going on? I don't know. Not too much. How you been? How things going? Oh, my goodness. You're failing as a news anchor. Oh, well, you knew that 100 episodes ago. Uh, but uh, let, let's start with the premieres for Deathly Hollows. And Richard, Andrew, you guys were in London. Let's start there. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't go to the premiere, but Richard did, along with Nick, who's been on the show a few times. And uh, you guys filmed the interviews, and you said it was a blast, right, Richard? Yeah, it was absolutely crazy. I mean, if you can imagine, four or five thousand fans screaming all afternoon. The place was surrounded by fireworks and everything, so it was so cool. Um, 
and we got to meet everyone. All the cast came around to us. Warner Brothers are really great about bringing all the cast, particularly to the fan site section. Um, other than that, you know, the cast and the crew basically decided where they want to go. And of course, J.K. Rowling came especially over to talk to us. So That's that was amazing. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, who else did you get to talk to in particular? Any standout um, interviews? Actually, the most interesting interview we had was the person who played Runcorn. Because um, mm-hmm. this was his first time in the films, and it turned out he was a major Harry Potter fan. He had read all the books so many times, <laughs> and he was talking about stuff that wasn't even part of this film, but in previous books. So that was really cool. Uh, he was actually the first one that read a carpet. I guess not many people really knew who he was. Um, <laughs> he couldn't wait to get out there and, and talk. Ex- exactly. This is finally yeah. he's got his shining moment in the press. Um... The producer, David, uh, David Heyman, he had a really good chat with him. Uh, we didn't really get to speak to uh, Dan and Emma that much because the time they got to us was the very end and they were all being rushed quite through. They're always being rushed in. <laughs> yeah, so that's They're that always being sucks. rushed in. Which is the same thing that we had in New York where we talked to a few of the crew members, uh, David Barron, David uh, Yates, and Stuart, uh, sorry, not Stuart Craig. Um, Steve Clovis. St- Steve Clovis. And uh, those interviews will be on MangoNet soon. We have, uh, we, we got a lot of cool information out of them. Uh, particularly Steve Clovis, the screenwriter. He's written all of them except for Order of the Phoenix. And he said that, I, 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 I said to him, David Heyman has said that you have jokingly said you could turn uh, the seventh book into three films. And he's like, and he looks at me deadpan, and he's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, you could? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And then he goes into this <laughs> rant about how it'd be so easy to do. And, um, but of course, they're not going to turn it into three films. But I found it interesting that he thought it was so, it'd be so easy to turn it into three. So um, maybe a missed opportunity by Warner Brothers? I don't know. <laughs> No, I, I think two is enough, and uh, <laughs> me too. But yeah. let, let's talk a little bit about the New York premiere in comparison to London, because I, I feel as if a lot of fans wrote in, a lot of fans had comments about how the premiere was set up, and even Andrew, you and I, you mentioned how the trio were sort of rushed through at the end. Ray Fines didn't come over. We didn't really get a chance to talk to David Heyman at all. I don't even know if that he walked the red carpet for that event. And uh, it was a little bit disappointing, I think, especially in comparison to, you know, the coverage that we had for Half-Blood Prince and Order of the Phoenix. And yeah. then even, uh, I remember going to the premiere in New York City for Goblet of Fire. That's when we all met each other for the first time. And this was nowhere close. Yeah, there were a couple problems. For one, for one, and the fans were upset because the, the stars didn't meet the fans. The fans who had been waiting there all day to see them. And then the red carpet interview area was sort of housed in a tent. So the fans couldn't even see the stars being interviewed like they could at past premieres <laughs> or like you could at the world premiere in London that Richard went to. And we got this one email from Sarah, 19 of New York, New York, who went to the premiere. And she writes, My name is Sarah, and I've been listening to the show for a while, but I've never felt the need to write in until now. I live in New York and went to the Deathly Hollows premiere tonight. I got there at about 8.30 a.m., got a nice spot right by the barricade, and made some friends. The whole day was very exciting, with everyone waiting for the stars, talking about Harry Potter, cheering whenever a bus with a Deathly Hallows ad on it drove by. As it got closer to 6, which is when the stars would arrive, we kept wondering when they were going to shut down the street so the actors could walk by the barricades. 
except that they, they never did. And as a result, the actors weren't allowed to walk by the fans for their safety. Most of the people around me got there at 8 a.m. or earlier. Some camped out overnight, and some drove 14 hours just for the premiere just to see the stars and get something signed. But we got nothing. I'd never been to a movie premiere before, and I've seen previous Harry Potter premieres, more specifically the most recent London premiere, which looked amazing. It seemed like there was a lot of fan interaction. The most we got in New York was Ray Fiennes rolling down his window and waving at us, which sparked a Voldemort chant through the crowd, and Tom Felton, who actually crossed the street and started signing autographs before security whisked him away. Overall, it was just a very big disappointment. I spent 12 hours sitting on the sidewalk for absolutely nothing. From what I've seen, I feel like this was the most... This was the worst of the Harry Potter premieres, the most unorganized. Why? Was it just poor planning? Um, she said it was a great weekend because of the Quidditch World Cup and all that, and she looks forward to hearing our review. So, yeah, and then we sort of, like, we went out to um, film the, the fans waiting outside. You know, they're all excited. We like to get footage of that. And I'm filming for, like, a minute, and the security guy comes up to me. He's like, are you press? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, we need you to stay in the tent and stay there. I'm like, what? What is this? I mean, what, yeah. uh, it was nuts. It was disappointing. And it was all because they wouldn't close down the street. And my theory is they could have closed down the street if they wanted to. I think they chose not to. Well, that's that's it, isn't it? I mean, why did they make that choice? Because the stars, I hate to say it, the stars didn't want to go meet the fans? I, I don't know. That's the only uh, thing I could think of. Well, clearly that's not true, though. You look, Tom Felton went over there to sign some right. autographs. He, he, I, I he think... braved his own life by doing that, well, crossing the street. Well, I don't know about that. He away. The cars were going pretty slow. I, I think that it could have been that the cast that they had for this particular film on the red carpet was so small that maybe they didn't think it was necessary to close down the street. We're, you're only talking about a handful of actors from the films that were there. Yeah. As opposed to the London premiere? or As opposed to even Half-Blood Prince from last year. I mean, you had the trio, Tom Felton, uh, Ray Fiennes, and that was it. Last year we had Alan Rickman. Um, well, this was a different venue than before, wasn't it? Or not? It was a different venue. That's the other thing. This this is the first time the New York premiere wasn't held at the Ziegfeld Theater. I thought so. So, so uh, you know, <clears throat> we don't want to dwell on it, but it was a little bit of a disappointment. I don't know. I noticed a, a sheer drop in our coverage, too. I mean, the the London premiere. <laughs> no, on MuggleNet, there were updates, the live stream, you know, all sorts of stuff coming out of London and New York. It was like the next yeah, day. It was nothing. It was hard. It was, it was hard. It was hard. But, um, okay, so what else is going on in the news, Micah, other than that? You were over in London, and uh, there was a press junket that took place. And, and some yes. of the information that came out of this press junket, one of the biggest pieces of information, is that... They're going to be reshooting parts of the Deathly Hallows epilogue. And uh, you got a chance to talk to, I think it was David Yates about it? Yeah, well, I didn't get to, but then at another table. By the way, the, no, you, the press... you asked him at the New York premiere. Oh, oh right. Yeah, at the, at the New York premiere, I did. <laughs> well, the New York premiere was <laughs> no, so low-key. It didn't even happen, really. I can't remember. No, I know, I, I, <laughs> was it Yates or was it David Barron? I can't remember no, I who asked, you asked. I asked Yates. Okay. I asked Yates. Um, but... Yeah, so this piece of info originally came out at the Junkets, which, by the way, went very well. That was very well organized, and we got a lot of time to talk to everyone. And I wrote up a report, which is on MuggleNet now, about that. But anyway, um, so they are going to be reshooting some of the epilogue scenes, and David Yates, Radcliffe, Watson, and Grin all confirm this. Basically, the studio looked at it, and they want it... They want... Basically, what Yates said was, to me was that 
they need it to they need to draw it out a little more. And and not in a bad way, but to so people can appreciate the moment more, can can really get in the get in in the scene. It can't feel rushed. It has to feel just right because this is the final scene of the series. So they're going back to do some reshoots. They're not going to King's Cross. Right. Uh, they're going to be doing these at the studio. Um, they sh- they originally shot the epilogue at King's Cross, so I'm sure they're going to mix the scenes together. Um, so it's a bit of a surprise, but it's good that they're doing that because I think everyone's worst fear would be this scene being screwed up, being <laughs> rushed, or not feeling long enough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And uh, last bit of news, you mentioned it earlier, but let's talk uh, for a few minutes here about the Quidditch World Cup that took place uh, over the premier weekend. And uh, Andrew, uh, you and I and Richard got a chance to to go check it out firsthand. And I have to say, I was pretty impressed. I thought it was kind of cool. And uh, a lot of different colleges and universities were there. I didn't realize how big of a sport this has become. And people had, you know, literally fans that were there you know i guess um uh classmates from their school uh that came to cheer them on and uh overall it it was pretty impressive event to watch yeah so for anyone who doesn't know quidditch world cup uh, the quidditch world cup we talked about it on episode 213 and we said we were going to go and mike and i were going to have a picnic and we didn't have a picnic but we did have a fun time watching and richard was there too and, um, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it's really, it was more exciting than I thought it would be. I, and it got very violent at some points. Like, these people are tossing balls at each other, knocking each other out. Uh, a few people had to be sent to the hospital because they were, I don't know what exactly, what injuries they uh, <laughs> received. But <laughs> there, there was blood being shed. Um, wow. It's, it's a brutal, it's a surprisingly brutal sport. So it was a lot of fun to watch, and uh, presumably it's going to be in New York again next year. And anyone who can make it there should definitely go. We saw a lot of MuggleNet and MuggleCast fans there, too, so shout out to them who all went. They all had the right idea by going. Uh, Richard, do you have any uh, other thoughts about it? I know you were enjoying it, too. Oh, I loved it. I wrote up a review as well, so if anyone wants to find right. m- more information about it, then they can check that out. But I thought the highlight of the entire thing was the commentators. Because in true uh, Lee Jordan style, they were hilarious throughout the entire the entire process. <laughs> Occasionally, they reported on the matches, but mostly they were going off on random tangents about, you know, Death Star trash compactors and <laughs> epic Nicolas Cage movies. And <laughs> yeah, they were they were um, improv students at Middlebury College, which is the college that started this whole Quidditch World Cup thing, <laughs> and won this year. And won, and won uh, again. Uh, they've won every 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 cup. Man, that's like Gryffindor, <laughs> man. I know. And how about the snitches, though? I thought that the things that they did right. were pretty creative. So how would they do this snitch? <laughs> the, the 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 snitch was the best part. It would be one person, uh, sometimes a guy, sometimes a girl, dressed in all yellow, and she would have, a, or he or she would have a ball hanging from their waistband. Uh, bouncing on their butt, basically, because when they're running, yeah. it's like bouncing off their butt, and then. So they'll come out onto the field and they'll start running around. And uh, there's a couple rules uh, in place. So, uh, like if if a seeker gets hit by, I guess it was a bludger or a quaffle, they have to they have to go back and tag um, their uh, 
their their um their end f- of the field yeah, before but- chasing the snitch again. And then the snitch could run around anywhere. It didn't just have to be the field. So they were running like outside of the park. <laughs> they were hiding in tents. They were uh, wearing referee costumes, uh, pretending to not be the uh, <laughs> snitch. Like a bunch of clever stuff like that. It was cool. That's hilarious. It, that was the best, the, the funnest uh, part. And, and the snitch was only worth thirty points. So that, excuse me. So that way, it wasn't an automatic win. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it did end the game. <clears throat> yeah. I, I thought they did a really good job. You know, it was kind of a creative game where they let the snitch go wherever he or she wants to go at the beginning of the match, and everybody has to keep their eyes closed. I guess it's kind of an honor system uh, that you don't take a peek as to where the snitch goes. But I think there's so much going on on the pitch that it would be hard for uh, the Seekers to... Uh, or not the Seekers. What do you call the the people that go after the snitch? Yeah, the Seekers. Seekers. The Seekers, seekers sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now, what, you say the Sneakers? Seek- like the Nike no, shoe? No, no, I said Seekers, <laughs> but I thought I had no. it wrong. No, uh... I think it would be even be hard for them to to find this person, especially with you know four other matches going on or or whatever it was. So I don't know. Even, I, I had a good time. I thought it was well done. I did too. Even yeah. if they did find the snitch, each snitch could really take care of themselves. Yeah, more especially right. that one girl <laughs> pushing and punching people <laughs> away from name. them. <laughs> there was this one girl who was yeah, the seeker, awesome. or was the snitch, and then on one of the teams, the the seeker was this big guy. And I was like, oh man, this, this is not fairly matched. I mean, this big guy is going to take this little girl down quick. Yeah. But she was, she was standing on her own. She was doing good, fighting him off and stuff. She was slapping on the back of the head and running away. Yeah. Uh, It was excellent. So that's the Quidditch World Cup. We'll report, we'll definitely let everyone know when the next one is. Presumably it'll be in November 2011. And, uh, we hope everyone who can get there should, can go because it's really worth checking out. And we'll try to get there next year as well. <clears throat> so now let's get to the big story, the main events, the and what would that bread be? and butter. That would be the countdown, the part two. There you go. <laughs> no, uh, the the movie. Let's talk about the movie. Um, so much to talk about too. We we should actually give some box office numbers to start as of Friday. Uh, it, it brought in $61 million for the opening day, and that puts it on track to break a franchise record, which is um, highest opening weekend of all time for a Harry Potter film. So um, the previous record was set by Goblet of Fire, actually, which brought in $102.7 million, and experts believe that this film, part one, will break that record. So very cool to hear, very exciting to hear. And let's talk about the film now. Let's get, we'll start with overall thoughts, then we're gonna break it down scene by scene. <clears throat> and then we're gonna go into favorite new character, least favorite scene, talk about the split, and get some, um, listener thoughts as well. So we have a lot to get to. Eric, let's start with you. You, of course, saw it, um, at a very, very, very early screening in Chicago, like practically last year at this point. And, um, the special effects weren't complete. So now, and, and the music wasn't either. So now that you've seen it complete, has your thoughts on it changed at all? Better, worse? What do you think? I loved it even more this time than I did the first time. And many people may not think that's possible, but it is. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved the movie. I think it's my favorite movie. I think it's, uh, I think it was, I would even go so far as to say it's, it's, it's very close to perfect. 
in my opinion. Were there any big changes that you saw that um, between this, the screener copy, that, the screening that you went to a few months ago and this one? There like, were... Any scenes added, removed? Yeah, there were six that I counted that were, you know, just different, either just different shots. None of them are, like, huge. Um, but there there were six different kind of changes. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to talk about them all here, but I, I will talk about them, um, you know, like later on in the show. But... Okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that, that this, this movie just blew the others away, especially with, um, the completed soundtrack. You know, I hadn't heard that at all the first time, and it fits so well with the, the film, uh, just as you're going through. And I, I mean, I listened to the soundtrack like the night before, too, so, you know, I just had it on my mind. But it seemed to match everything in the film. Like, it didn't disappoint. You know, we were worried. We talked on MogulCast about the soundtrack possibly, you know, being less or or more you know w- uh, you know different from what fans expected but i i thought it was perfect and i i just i loved it richard your overall thoughts please well i think mine's pretty much the opposite of eric because i i came out of the cinema feeling pretty disappointed to be honest i i mm. didn't think that much of the film i thought i don't want to go into too much detail at this point but i thought the first you know third of the movie the first 30 minutes was was brilliant it was, it was just that was some of my favorite scenes from any Harry Potter movie. And from, from then onwards, I thought it deteriorated and it became, it was dragging, it became dull, and I thought the ending was quite anticlimactic. So, I don't know. Overall, I mean, I'm not that impressed with it. Micah, similar thoughts to Eric or Richard? Uh, I'm going to go somewhere in between. Uh, I, I think, um, when I, when I left the, the theater, I felt as though something was missing and, and I'll go into that a little bit more, I guess, as we, as we talk about, uh, you know, different scenes and, and, and plot points and things like that. Um, you know, I thought the, the book to film adaptation was great. And, and I think it's probably the closest to anything we've seen since the first two films. And Steve Clovis did a great job. Uh, I think overall it's a good movie, but I have some issues with it. I'll leave it at that. I think I'd have to side with Micah. I agree. I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I'll get into some specific favorite scenes in a, in a bit. But overall, I was shocked at first. And I was a bit worried that fans were going to have the same reaction that I did. But I was proven wrong. I mean, most fans, it seems like, really, really loved it. And really thought it was going to um, be... Or everyone thought it was the best. So, obviously, we have a lot of opposing thoughts, which it's, is good. It's good, so we yeah. Can, it's going to be... Yeah. <laughs> So be a good we're not all going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's go first, major scenes, and we're going to go in orders to try to keep this as orderly as possible. Um, we'll start with the opening montage. <clears throat> At least I'm, I, I've been calling it the montage because we see a variety of scenes sort of all mashed together. Um, it's not a montage like what we've seen in Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince, which I didn't like. But the opening montage with... Um, the minister making a speech, Hermione obliviating her parents' minds, um, the Dursleys leaving, uh, shots of Ron at the burrow, all those, the, that opening montage got me really excited for what I was about to watch. Did anyone else have that sort of feeling? I thought those opening few minutes were great. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really impactful the way that, uh, Hermione went about, uh, obliviating her parents' mind. And yeah. I think, People who maybe didn't get the the severity of what was going on in this film got it right off the bat uh, yeah. with what she had to go through. And, uh, you know, with the Dursleys, though, I really felt, and I, and I put this in the review that I wrote, um, you know, 
possibly one of the most redeeming moments in the whole series was questionably omitted here. Um, specifically when Dudley asked why, you know, Harry isn't coming with him. That was in the book, but in the movie, all Dudley asks is why they have to leave. And, you know, I'm worried about how they're going to tie in Petunia to the next film, even though I know David Yates mentioned, uh, when we spoke to him on the red carpet that that scene is a deleted scene on the DVD. So why they didn't include it, I was a little bit upset about that. Because I thought it really redeemed a scene between Harry and Petunia. But I I feel that leaving that scene out, it was a redeeming moment for Dudley. And uh, I think a lot of people were actually looking forward to that. Maybe maybe they took it out because his character really wasn't developed. Yeah, I, I think in the past few exactly, films. Exactly. I think people have to remember that the Dursleys, the role of the Dursleys, is is quite diminished in the films, especially as of late. Like in the in the first three films, I would say they were probably given, you know, due credit. Um, but lately, you know, it's been reduced. I mean, I think the most, especially with Dudley, has been movie five when he obviously gets attacked by the Dementor. But I don't know that it would have had the same effect that, that Petunia and Harry are talking. Meanwhile, the, you know, the rest of the world is in, you know, a lot of people are, are going through a lot of horrible things. I, I, I don't know that it would have meant anything to the audience, especially those unfamiliar with the books. One thing that Emma brought up at the junket in London about that scene with Hermione obliviating her parents' mind is she said she could really connect to that. And she said, she she was like, I don't want to get very emotional, but my parents separated, and um, so I could really connect with that, um, having to split the family into two. I was like, oh, wow. Like, she... um you know, she had something really to relate to to this for this very small yeah. scene, but it was very um, it really struck a chord with her. So powerful too, yeah. And and just like I know we'll be saying this a lot, but her, I mean Emma Watson, man, she was awesome in this movie. She was. I thought her acting yep. was the best I've seen in any of the Harry Potter films, and she kind of she kind of stole the show a bit, and. And you always saw in every scene how much emotion she was pouring out, and particularly in the obliviating scene. And a- another fun fact about that scene was those baby pictures of her were her, her actual <laughs> baby pictures. I was I was trying <laughs> to think, are those the same parents they had in they, Chamber of Secrets? Not well, not the same. The same actors. Th- those weren't her real. Oh, I don't know. But but the the shots of Emma in those photos were her actual child photos. Not the the parents were obviously yeah. replaced for the film. I, but. I thought it was fitting because you know she re- is removed from those photos. So you know the fact that they had to place her in those photos is kind of funny. It's kind of easy to create that effect. You know, if mm-hmm. she hadn't really been in those photos to begin with. Just before we move on, there was a there was a small change in Dursley's departing. There wasn't the scene. With Harry and Petunia, you know, I didn't see that, and I'm interested. Um, but actually what Dudley says to Vernon, um, I guess in the film is what, you know, why are we leaving? And Durst and Vernon says, because it's not safe. Right. Um, is that, yeah. Original, like when, at the pre-screening, um, there was this, there was another shot of Vernon and Dudley loaning, you know, learning, um, sorry, loading the car, and, uh, Dudley asked him, Dudley asked Vernon, why isn't Harry coming with us? Or why isn't he coming with us? And Vernon says to him, because he doesn't want to. And it's not the kind of scene, it's not like he's, he's telling Dudley that, that Harry's being a jerk. He's saying, you know, very matter of factly, he doesn't want to, 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 to diffuse the emotion. It's this great. So you're saying that that was cut out. That was of, cut out. 
the and, final and in film. Fact, yeah, and I don't know why that. Yeah. See, I do think that could have been, as I said before, a redeeming scene for Dudley because despite what you said, he wasn't as built up as much, uh, as a character, you know, with the exception of Order of the Phoenix. I still think that when you look at that family as a whole and how they've treated Harry to have their son turn around and say something like that, yeah. I think it was something that people were looking forward to. And I think maybe it was moved because people would think it'd be confusing because obviously Vernon isn't, you know, he's saying Harry doesn't want to. Maybe people would have taken that literally, but what what it really means is with the line in the film is you know it's not safe. So, I, I guess that was just one of those. But that was the first change that I noticed. Another scene I really liked in this montage was when Harry opens the old cupboard <laughs> under the stairs again, and I'm trying to page through the book right now to see if that's actually in here. But uh, does anyone remember that actually being the book where he yeah. sort of looks at that? It's in the and, book. And he p- it is okay, and he picks up the old pieces from his uh, the knights, the knights which he played with in Sorcerer's Stone, right? <laughs> those in the film, I, I thought that was awesome. I'm surprised nobody made off with those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that that was really cool. I thought that was a really good throwback, and that was kind of the thing. The one of the things I've been hoping to see in this film, just a lot of references to the older films, um, a lot of little tributes like that. That was definitely a, a nice little and tribute that, that they And that in. first shot from inside the cupboard, when he first opens the cupboard door, the camera is inside the cupboard, and it just looks so much like that first teaser uh, for Sorcerer's Stone, you know, years mm. ago in like 2000, maybe it was, you know, there's no such thing as magic, and he, you know, slams right. it shut, but it's so reminiscent of that that it was just it was it was it was painfully beautiful. Somebody should do a side by shot si- side by side shot of those well, two. You know, one. It'll in still seven, be like... event in the cupboard when, when all is said and done. <laughs> <laughs> Next big scene: Seven Potters. We all know it well from the book. This I I had made it very clear. This is one of the scenes that I was most looking forward to on past episodes of MuggleCast, and I was pretty satisfied with it. The one thing that I thought, and I talked, I, I teased this on the last episode of MuggleCast. I said, I didn't want to spoil it for anyone too early, but I think that th- where the camera sort of does a uh, pan around, and you don't see their true transformations, you just see their early transformations. I thought that was a bit cheap at first, but now, seeing it in the film, in the context of everything, I thought it was really well done. And the audience in the fan theater that I went to just ate that up with all the different Harrys talking in different people's voices. Mm. That was hilarious. Yeah, they, they interestingly they they kept the continuity of I guess Chamber of Secrets, which is a, is a departure from the book that you know you don't sound like the person you're changing into. Complete movieism, um, but it works so well again in this film because you know even later at the Ministry you need to remember who's who. Uh, it's just a lot easier, but. It was interesting they kept that, and that pan around shot. This is why I like the Seven Potters. Is it's one of two pan around shots in the film that were just so awesome. And I mean, the other one being later in the woods when Hermione's protection is tested um, by the Snatchers. But I-, I was just blown away by you know everything the camera's doing, even this early on. It's just, it was awesome. Yeah, I-, I agree. This this scene was done very well. We got a pretty good sense of it beforehand because most of it was released online. Uh, but there were parts of it that I was surprised weren't in that clip, that 90-second clip that we got. And, uh, you know, I thought it, w- it was one of the better scenes uh, of the entire film. I, I seem to remember the girls uh, on my screening seemed to enjoy when Harry was taking his shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a bra underneath. And Harry, 
Harry in a bra was very funny as well. Um, and by the way, this uh, we got our answer to the question of how they would introduce Bill Re- Weasley. And it was basically how I predicted, Micah. Were you, were you satisfied uh, with that? I mean, basically, Bill just says, hey, I'm Bill. <laughs> and yeah, and, that's and it. he mentions that he was attacked by Greyback. Right, which was said so quickly. I don't know if people so, picked it up. Yeah, I don't think so either. And, like, he had a thick accent, in my opinion. So I, all I heard was, all I heard was, Greyback. <laughs> and then Lupin makes the joke about steak, which is in the books, but, yeah, it's kind of rushed. Yeah. So at least we got that, and, and also Floor was like, oh, hey, hey, how are you? And Oh, Tonks and Lupin are kind of pregnant. <laughs> yeah, that was so, that was really quick, too, like, because we don't hear her say it, we just hear her. Yeah, she gets cut off yeah. by Moody. Right. Let's talk about the scene at Malfoy Manor. Because we completely left that oh. out. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Malfoy Manor, when Snape says, when Snape gives Voldemort what the plan is to move Harry. I, the Malfoy Manor scenes overall, each one of them was my absolute favorite. Because Ray Fiennes was just fantastic. As was Alan Rickman. And Bellatrix was just incredible. I mean, yeah. she had this extra sense of um, craziness to her. Well, not just craziness, but um, I want to say she was more rooted in reality. Like, sure, she's serving this, serving this dark wizard, but I, she just seemed to be in the zone a little bit better than she has. But she's not just, you know, crazy laughing for no reason. She was kind of seriously – she wanted to be the one to kill Harry, you know, and she – was- Asked permission, and then she was denied permission, and she, you know, bowed her head. She looked like sulky. a beaten dog. Yeah, you know, you know, like or not a beaten dog, like when you scold a dog, and a dog puts its head da- hits its head down. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's exactly what she looked like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just thought she she came across as pure evil. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. I wanted to talk about um, Lucius. Just quickly, because oh yeah, Jason Isaacs in this film, I don't know, he didn't shave for a couple days. Lucius is <laughs> Lucius is kind of rough around the edges. And <laughs> when Voldemort asks him for his wand, I think this is one of the standout scenes in the film. Is when Voldemort takes Lucius's wand and snaps off the little yeah. extra bit, you know, yeah. the, and just throws it on the table and it clunks. And you can just hear it clunk and, like, the face Lucius makes. He's just defeated. In my theater, when when he cracked it, everyone went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, it was very creepy. Did, 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 I, I don't know if this was in the book, did Voldemort steal uh, Lucius's uh, razor as well? I couldn't figure out why he hadn't shaved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think they, they really did a great job of showing how stressed out Lucius Malfoy has yeah, been really over, over the course. Yeah, the whole family really over the course of, I guess, the the couple weeks since we last saw them in Half-Blood Prince. I mean, you could really see it uh, in Jason Isaacs, just how like embattled he was and, and everything. Brewing. The stress that he's been under, yeah. So now let's move on to the will and testament. This was, of course, right before the wedding. When Scrimger comes in, and this was, this, this scene, I, I was pretty, um, pleased with this, cause it turned out to be pretty funny. Cause Ron is sort of just acting a, a bit dumb. <laughs> He's just like, oh, cool. <laughs> um, and Bill Nye, he, he was great, I thought. 
Yeah. Anyone have any problems with the scene? Or I actually didn't think I didn't really like his performance. I think I'm one of the only ones because really. Well, in the book, you get the impression that the minister, you know, he was an XR. He's really rough. He's he's he, he kind of personifies the sort of power and bravery. I didn't think he came across as that. I thought Bill Nye's accent was sort of Middle England, and he was he was kind of a bit afraid. And he was a bit weak, and I don't know. I didn't think he was that great. It's interesting. Because, um, you know, obviously in the book, he has a little bit more time to try and persuade Harry. I think even in the movie, he tries to persuade, he, he says something like, you can't fight this on your own. And it's, it's almost like he's extending an invitation to, you know, to cooperate, to like work with Harry, but it's not developed. And if they, you know, obviously he's dead in the next, in the very, very next scene, it's the wedding. And we find out that he's just been killed, you know, yeah. mere hours after visiting Harry. So I guess maybe that was a choice so that they, they couldn't, you know, I mean, if they had made him more, you know, stronger, they would have had to develop sort of why he was able to die. We're just able to believe that, you know, he was overpowered and that's just how things were without asking too much about it. Can I, can I bring up a larger point here? Um, because I think it's kind of the, the bigger problem that I had with this film. Um, and, and it relates to Scrimgeour. Uh, you know, and w- like one of the biggest disconnects I felt with this movie, um, is in large part due to what didn't play, take place in, uh, previous films, particularly Half-Blood Prince. And I felt that they really missed the boat to show just how much danger Voldemort presented to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yes. And which, which they emphasize, emphasized a lot in the beginning of Half-Blood Prince. Well, yes and no, because I think if they would have done the other minister scene, you know, sort of that transfer of power from Fudge to Scrimgeour and then meeting with the British Prime Minister, it would have made people realize just how much danger he did present, you know, the gravity of the situation, so to speak. Because, and I think that when this all transfers over to that road opera, with the trio traveling in the woods, if they would have developed that earlier, it, it would have made this all make a little bit more sense and more believable. And you're I, saying and that's where, people need to know more about how Voldemort poses a threat to non-wizards. Exactly, because I, I and and to show the danger that he presents to. But the, the only real cast, world. the only characters in this film are wizards. And right, the but they are traveling in the quote real world. When they go right, to the I forest, mean, they go th- they're in the real world, and there's this danger of, of of these other wizards attacking them in the Muggle world. They're no longer in the magical world anymore, and I think that that's where Deathly Hallows really just it, it lost itself it, when they transferred over over to the road opera, so to speak. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I, I don't think this film at all managed to capture the sense of fear that the trio had throughout, or the entire wizarding, you know, wizarding world has throughout. The whole fear of what Voldemort's up to and he's killing everyone. And the only time he even got a slight reference to that was when Ron was playing with the radio. And the only way the film sort of personified was that, that Harry didn't like it and Harry got annoyed with it. And there was no other real way of capturing what the world is feeling right now. And I thought that was my biggest letdown of the entire film. Yeah. And and just on Scrimgeour, one more point. I think if they would have introduced him a movie earlier, and, and Eric, you mentioned the fact that there was sort of this pre-existing relationship that nobody really got because they didn't introduce him in Half-Blood Prince, um, people would have had a better idea of, of just how they felt towards each other. And it's not even stated in this movie 
you know, that perhaps the most influential and powerful government official in the wizarding world just died for Harry Potter. You know, it, yeah. it's mentioned yeah. in passing by Kingsley's Patronus that the minister is dead. But you have no idea how that impacts Harry as, in terms of him moving forward as a character. So Right, because didn't he refuse to give over Harry's whereabouts or something exactly. like that? Exactly, he did. Yeah, yeah. so, so he, he refused to believe that the ministry was corrupt, and then at the very last moments of his life, when he was forced to believe that the ministry you know, was corrupt, he didn't sell Harry out. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of deaths, were you guys satisfied with the reaction to Mad Eye's death? I mean, it does come very sudden in the book. Did Did you like how it was transferred to the movie? Cause per- personally, for me, it felt rushed. It did feel a bit rushed, but I hate to say that because it's like, how long do you want to actually dwell dwell well, on I feel that? The, the way it was introduced, though, was poor. Like, I think it was Bill who said Mad Eye's dead. Yeah, yeah. And here's a character. I agree. If it was delivered by a character that we had seen throughout the other movies, it might have been more impactful. Having Bill do it, I thought it was just like, oh, Mad Eye's dead. You know, and it didn't have any emotion behind it. I think the emphasis. Uh, I think using Bill to do it was was the right thing. You know, it, it, Bill was, I think, the right choice as an actor. I think they cast him well. He looks just like the others. So I believed instantly when he's like, hey, I'm Bill Wizzy. Oh, okay, so that's Bill. Like, I just went with it. And when he says Mad-Eye's dead, he is sad about it. And the fact that somebody we've never met can be that sad about Mad-Eye's death shows that there's a larger world and shows that there's this larger order, people we haven't maybe even considered, who are affected by Mad-Eye's death, who are affected by the deaths of these characters we, we do know. Well, no. I mean, it comes after a very comedic moment where, uh, you know, George talks about being holy, and then it, you just get that quick one-liner, Mad Eye's dead. I they weren't it, sure I don't think about it was it. delivered well. It, I don't, in uh, my opinion. Yeah. Until then. I agree with you, Michael. I agree. I, I, you nailed it. The introduction was, was my problem with it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you just met this character, Bill. Most people really still don't know who he is. Um, and... And they don't spend too much time on it, but that's, that was okay with me because, you know, you gotta keep the, the pace of the film moving and, um, maybe a little more reflection could, would have been okay. Yeah, I, I just think that, um, they really, their concern was George. I mean, not everybody had returned immediately. And when George lost his ear, the Weasleys, obviously their main concern is gonna be their own, who is, who is, you know, cursed. It was each other at first, and then when mostly everybody arrived, they you know they were able to focus on George. So I don't know when they would have announced you know Moody's death if it were sooner than that. And I, I guess I can see kind of where you're coming from that it was you know Bill, a periphery character, to say it. But I think they, all, I think it all meant the same to them, and I'm glad they didn't dwell on it anymore. Yeah, but there wasn't even a question from. Uh you know, say, uh, Arthur or Remus, uh, where's Mad-Eye, you know? I, I, f- I felt like that was just, uh, synonymous with how life changes suddenly like that. It's, it's kind of, I, I guess it was supposed to be like a shock, like to everybody, but to also the audience that this character who had just been making jokes about goblin piss, you know, they were making, you know, Fred and George were taking the piss out of him for that. Um, yeah. is just gone. No longer going to be in the film. He gets no outro. He gets no nothing. It's just boom, he's dead. And I think that was yeah. supposed to, I think that was the intended effect. Closing point, Richard. Uh, Alright, I was just wondering that when, when George lost his ear, was there any reference to Snape since he was the one that actually did it? No. 
now? Because that could be important, because I'm assuming they're going to have a montage in the next film about Snape's good side, and there was no reference to that at all. I thought it would be a nice entry point. It, it is kind of weird that they, they really didn't play up the uh, Snape, do we trust Snape angle. Not at all. Uh, in promoting this film at all. Because, you know, with the book, it was such a big question, and... Mm. And, uh, you know, maybe because they figure everybody knows the outcome anyway, or most people do, but... Yeah, he got very we- little screen time other than just really the opening few minutes. That was mm-hmm. it, right? I mean, he didn't appear at all in, in the Although, rest of the film. interestingly, um, you know, Harry's looking at the Marauder's map at one scene after he hears on the radio that Snape is the new headmaster. So there is those little bits, yes. but they're, they're easy to miss, but there, there are those little bits. Yeah. So let's get to the wedding scene. Of course, we're not, we don't see the actual wedding. We just see the, the after party. And Harry is sitting there talking with, uh, Mariel. And she, she gives some information about Dumbledore. And Harry starts to distrust him. And that, that's one of the main, main themes of this film is can I, can, can Harry trust Dumbledore? And the viewer's supposed to take that in too. So. I personally don't think that it was emphasized enough. Yeah, I agree. I I completely agree here with you. Uh, I thought they did. Uh, this is the only part where they where they develop sort of the distrust of Dumbledore, and then they don't revisit it at all throughout the course of the movie. This is it. When, when you have that. Well, convers- they do a little bit with when Ron says, you know, oh, we're chasing down all these Horcruxes, and 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 yeah. Dumbledore didn't give you any information, but. As far as his background, as far as, you know, sort of the plan that's been laid out for Harry or lack thereof, um, you know, as Harry goes through and, and learns more and more from the book that Rita Skeeter wrote, uh, there's just – you don't hear much about him. And and I felt like this was a great opportunity because I think in the, when we read uh, Deathly Hallows, we all questioned Dumbledore. I mean, Eric, you were the one who said he raised him like a pig for slaughter. Which and he did. And that was not even touched on in this movie after the wedding scene where Harry's sitting down with Muriel and, and Alpheus Doge. I think you got to look at a few key things. The first is that Hermione, in the, in the movie, Hermione is the one reading The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. She picks it up at Bethilda's house quite late in the film and is only, is, is seen, is shown only about halfway through it. I think, in a scene closer to the end of the film. So she's still kind of picking up things about it. You know, it's kind of like you wait until the end of the book to do a book review. So I'm saying maybe a lot of that will come into play in part two, especially when they have to, uh, they are going to introduce Aberforth because they made such a big deal about the mirror. And, you know, we can talk about that later. But, uh-huh. you know, little, little things like casting uh, the photographs of Grindelwald and Dumbledore that are in the book. You know, I, I feel like the groundwork is all laid. I didn't feel shorted at all on the Dumbledore can we trust him subplot. Um, particularly because whoever they got to cast as Muriel is a freaking bitch. Like, <laughs> she just, she just tore Harry apart. You know, and, and, her and costume was amazing. A though, friend of mine, a friend of mine made the comment, they didn't feel it was right to include the characters of Elpheus Doge and Aunt Muriel in the film because they're periphery and, you know, my friend felt that, uh, they could do more with the actual main characters if they had those do, those characters do some of the exposition. But again, my feelings on that, um, if I could echo them here, if anybody else is feeling that way, um, Again, outsiders who we as the the film viewers have never met um, 
talking about Dumbledore, who we do, even the film viewers, should know, again, it gives the illusion of the wider world, the wider wizarding world, you know, characters we never met talking about someone we know intimately and casting a different you know, shadow on him. I think that was, was, was fine. Plus, not to mention, it's canon to have those characters, and I thought they were well acted. I, I think that it would have been better if Harry would have questioned Dumbledore more throughout the course of this film, because you're just left with Aunt Muriel saying to Harry, honestly, boy, how well did you really know him? And, and that's it. And that, that and they- was my problem. Ultimately. They drove that point home too, because they got a close up of her, and you know, it's <laughs> like they really emphasized that. And by the way, that was our little cameo from uh, Rita Skeeter, Miranda Richardson. What so, on the back of the book? Yeah, on the back of the book. That's when she came into film. <laughs> <laughs> her winking so, suggestively. <laughs> right. Check out my book. So that was the wedding scene, and then we get to... Well, Kingsley's Patronus, not fully formed. Why not? Not fully formed. Yeah, well, what's maybe... what's those faces? I think they didn't fully form Kingsley, Kingsley's Patronus, Patronus because they, a, a regular viewer would not know why it's in the shape, why it's in a particular shape. But then there's the silver doe. Do you think if they would have filmed or, or, or fully formed Kingsley's Patronus that p- maybe they didn't want the audience to know that the silver doe exactly specifically was a Patronus? Well, they also had umbrages in the ministry, though. Oh, and that was so cool. I just noticed. That for, was cool. For the first time that. last night that that was what was keeping the Dementors at bay in the court yeah. scene. Yeah. I, that I, was awesome. I Did anybody that. else not feel as uh, much of an impact as when you read it in the book about uh, Kingsley's uh, statement that the ministry had fallen. Yeah, I thought it was dragging out, and he was sort of telling a small, uh, you know, a short story as opposed to saying, "Hey, get the hell out of here." Because <laughs> it it was a holy bleep moment in the books, you know. It, and and this it didn't come across that way. The same way I didn't feel the ending came across either. So, but we'll talk they about that coming. later. By coming. the way, uh, Victor Crumb completely cut out of the wedding. Yeah, change number two. He, he, change he number did, two. He was in, in your screening, Absolutely. Eric, in the Chicago. There's a scene where Hermione talks to Crumb, or she goes up to him. He kind of says hi, and then he looks at her like, you, you know, he recognizes her and stuff, but then he, then like a Vila girl passes, and he actually just turns and walks away. So they filmed it, and he probably got paid to be in this movie, but they cut him out of the film. At least they got, he got his pay, and hopefully we'll see him on the DVD. Actually, that's, um, that's what I liked about the wedding, too. I, I, just realized there were um, some Bobatons girls there, and I thought that was obviously it's obviously important to include them. But they were dressed in their you know the blue uniform from from the fourth movie. There were just a few scattered around the wedding in the background, and I thought maybe the film. I think that's kind of a testament to the to the department of you know costuming. They said, hey, we need some old school friends of Fleur's here, you know. So the trio get the heck out of there, and then suddenly they're in London. And I thought this was good. The transfer, the uh, operating to London, and they, they of course, land right in front of a double-decker bus, so they move out of the way very quickly. And then Hermione um, does the uh, gets them into new clothes, and they um, they go into the cafe where there's a snatcher attack. And I thought that was funny because the waitress is completely oblivious <laughs> to what's going on until yeah, she walks out, and her. Her, or was it Hermione who says leave, or was it Harry? Yeah, it Hermione. Hermione. <laughs> leave! <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this was the first instance where 
the taboo is used, but they don't yeah. realize it. And I thought, again, they didn't really explain this at all in the film. Not sure that they had to, but I think it would have been, it would have made more sense for people to, to figure that out because then you could go back to the different moments in the film that they said the name Voldemort and all of a sudden these snatchers showed up. Yeah. I mean, Harry is shown, Harry is shown saying you know who at, in one scene and it seems almost, it was jarring that he says you know who and we aren't explained why he doesn't just say Voldemort. I picked up on that as well and I almost wondered why. I mean, what was the point of it? I guess, I guess because they didn't really want to explain the whole taboo thing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, well, later, okay, so Lovegood, when Lovegood says it, when Zeno says it, it obviously, that's the moment when they, when they come. But you're wondering if, because there was also that crow that was flying away from the place to start the Three Brothers scene, so we're yeah. wondering if he sent, we're wondering if he sent a letter, though. But then right. when he says Voldemort is when they actually show up. So it's kind of, but it's still not explain, explaining, like I said, you know, Harry does say you-know-who in one scene. He's talking to Hermione, like, you know, you can use the, the name freely with Hermione, but he doesn't. And it's not explained. The trio then goes to Grimwad Place, and they see the Dumbledore um, sands slash ghost figure thing. And you know that wasn't explained too much. It was sort of just like, oh, well, it was put. In, it was probably put in place for Snape. Mm-hmm. But it's like a- any viewer would just think, well, if Snape saw that, wouldn't he just stand there and scream like Hermione did? I <laughs> thought that was quite terrifying, though. That whole scene was one of the scariest in the entire film. It was. And then we, and they're sort of searching around the house and we see Creature. And Creature looked good and he sounded good. And I, you know, I think he, he didn't change too much from Order of the Phoenix in terms of visual appearance. And, uh, I liked him. Any, any comments about Grimwald Place? Yeah. This part of Grimwald Place? I think this moved really fast. Like th- this whole part, figuring out who RAB was, you know, sending Creature after Mundungus, finding out where the locket was, and then getting to the ministry. It was very fast-paced. So I wonder if non-fans of the books are going to get completely lost in terms of what's going on here, because it, it did move very quickly. It did. There was a lot of kind of story elements that, that were just thrown in there. Yeah. Um, like them rereading, the, yeah, them rereading the locket, you know, for instance. They then head to the Ministry of Magic, and they turn into the Ministry members. This was pretty funny, because the the way that these, these other actors portrayed Harry, Ron, and Hermione in terms of their walk, uh, their talk, their their isms. They are very well done, and I think at the Junket interviews, or somewhere, in you know, one of the billion interviews that have been online in the past few weeks, the trio said that they would first act out the scenes, and then these adult, these Ministry of Magic actors would then <laughs> mimic them. So yeah. they so the trio was there, too, filming with along the, uh, alongside, and I thought that was a cool idea. I'm going to yeah. go out on a limb. I'm going to say that this was some of the best acting in the entire film. I, I agree. <laughs> From the Vince? Yeah. Was, really? Why? Was down by the strangers? Yeah. Why do you like it, Richard? Um, well, t- to be honest, in, in the entire film, I kind of thought Daniel Radcliffe's acting was really wooden in a lot of scenes. I mean, he's improved a lot as the films have gone on, but sometimes he come across as very, very fake and very dense and very uninspiring. And I thought that these scenes in particular... I thought they came alive more, mostly because he wasn't in them. And <laughs> wow! <I don't, laughs> tell us how you really go feel. ahead. Come on, no, stand by your opinion. What? What? Go ahead. Well, I just, I, I just thought it was there's a there's a nice sort of irony to that. Is that I thought they were my, that was my favorite scenes in the entire film was the ministry. And I thought yeah. they were the best scenes. Film. Yeah, I know. I think exactly. There's a there's an irony to that, but I, I just thought that those actors delivered a more credible performance than Dan can give. Well, he's got he's got a few years. <laughs> 
Just, just to throw it out there, uh, Runghorn was David O'Hara. Mafalda Hopkirk was Sophie Thompson, who's the sister, I think, of Emma Thompson, right? Wow. Yeah. And, uh, they were brilliant, Re- though. Reg Cattermole was played by Stefan Rodri. So yeah, I, I think, I think put Reg them up for Academy favorite. Awards. Yeah, <laughs> all three were just brilliant. They were good, yeah. Uh, so they they get into the courtroom. I, when they're going around the ministry, that was very funny. I mean, going into the elevators, running into Umbridge. Uh, Imelton Sauten was as great as ever, I thought. <laughs> she does yeah. the laugh. She does the laugh. She's awesome. Well, but can I, oh, can I throw one thing out there, though? You talked about going around the ministry. The fact that Harry didn't take the eye off the door of Mad-Eye. Oh, yeah. Such an easy thing to do that they left out. And there's yeah. no reflection at all from Harry in, in that scene. You know, when he saw it, he should have uh, reacted a little bit better, Yeah, I it's thought. kind of one of those things where they're expecting the audience to recognize it, but it gets no pay. Like the mirror scene, they're, they're at... Harry is in Sirius's room, and, you know, still he has this mirror whose origins are unexplained. It's never explained how he got the mirror. He picks it up in the very beginning of the film when he's in his bedroom at, at Privet Drive, and later on in the film, we see him in Sirius's bedroom. He could have picked up the mirror at that point in the film, and they just didn't do it. Missed opportunity or... What was going on? Yeah, well, speaking of the mirror, I was very disappointed with that whole thing because there's no introduction for the mirror either. You just see Harry looking at it, and suddenly you see what some would probably figure out to be Dumbledore's eye, but it's not even Dumbledore's, it's Aberforth Dumbledore's, and there's just no explanation. And I counted, he picks it up like three or four times in this movie. Well, we did did have a pretty lengthy discussion on MuggleCast about this, like I think it was last episode, where you guys were asking me about this. And I want to get your thoughts on that, but I I also want to stick to the points here quickly. Yeah, let's, Um, well, we can... Yeah, but mm-hmm. when they when they flush themselves in, okay, when public servants have to flush themselves <laughs> in into work, that was funny. It's it's the best. It's the best ever. I I just I love that. That was good. So when they get down into the courtroom, Umbridge is there, and like Eric mentioned earlier, the Patronus keeping uh, the Dementors at bay. That was really that was that was pretty well done. It, it was it was nice to see uh, uh, Umbridge's. Patronus, which of course was the kitty cat. Did you guys notice the the music notes emanating from the cat? Like there was the Patronus, and then there's these little music staff notes, like you know the like uh, you would normally maybe. see. That's what was coming. To ring a bell. It was coming from the cat and floating up to the to the barrier to to prevent. You know, the barrier. So the cat was, like, singing or something. It was really interesting. And this was one of my favorite parts of the movie, I think, actually, when uh, Harry slowly starts walking up to Umbridge, and Umbridge says, What are you doing? And Harry throws the spell at her. And he's chain-transforming. hell breaks loose. As it happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And <laughs> now, what did you guys think? This is, of course, a, a change from the book. What did you guys think of when Ron is transforming back into himself mid-kiss? And I like uh, for for a theater. I guess it's very funny. It's very oh haha. Of course he transforms back mid kiss. D- that's that's not in the book though. Did you guys like that? I, yeah, I think it was, it was an right. effort to, was to diffuse. Yeah, to diffuse the tension too, because this poor Mary character has gone through so yeah. much, like so much really, and like everybody in the ministry is wearing like red bands, like they're the SS. It's this this really heavy. Uh, allegory of people being persecuted and you, you know the fact that like her look on the look on Mary's face when she kisses Ron you know and and then of course the real Reg just walks into work at that moment it's just this the look on her face she's 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 terrified she doesn't know what to say 
But like, I think, you know, it, it's supposed to show Ron's development as a character too, though. Yes. When he's when he says to her, you know, take the kids and go. Take the kids. Yeah. You know, it, you're supposed to see a different side of, of Ron that you haven't seen up until this point. And Andrew, what you mentioned, I also like the tie back to Order of the Phoenix when Harry says to Umbridge, "You shall not tell lies." Ah, oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that was good. That was good. The only thing I didn't like about the ministry whole scenes, and this is kind of a, a petty thing to argue about, is that I always felt that they're starting to lose a, a touch of the magic to it. You notice that no one was really wearing wizarding robes any longer. Security guards were dressed like regular cops or whatever. And I was kind of expecting to see you know, people dressed as wizards, not as, as muggles, in the Ministry of Magic. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, I agree. I would agree to an extent. I would say... Again, it's kind of Nazi Germany, so everybody's wearing the same thing, and it's not going to be extravagant. It's going to be dull tones, dull outfits sort of thing, um, and everybody alike uniformity. That's what I would argue. What did you guys think of, of Yaxley? In, he was in Malfoy Manor, but he's also in this particular scene. He reminded me a bit I loved him. of, a, I of like an Italian mobster. Yeah, <laughs> I thought he got the anger across. It's still Great. raining I mean, in my office. You can just see his anger when he starts tra- chasing after uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And, and those scenes, by the way, were great, too, where um, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are are running towards the fireplace to get out of the ministry. And there's sort of a slowest, uh, or a shot that's sort of slowed down, and you see Ron running, and, and like his mouth is gaping open. And he chased, yeah. <laughs> and then, and that transition too was great. I thought when yeah. they get in the fireplace and it's sort of you see the roots of the trees and then you see the silhouettes of the trees and then they they sort of just come up, um, and then they're on the road. Well, yeah. the silence, the silence of the the music, just the soundtrack is dead, and you see these trees and you know something's wrong way before you see Ron splinched. Yeah, and and Yaxley, I think. You know, it was he's almost like a horror movie character, like a Michael Myers. Is like he's slowly stalking them. He doesn't start to run after them until he absolutely needs to. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a slow uh, gate to 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 catch them. Like he he almost knows that eventually he's going to get his hands on them. Yeah, he's such a he's a good actor too. Like I, again, you know, with with finding the the polyjuiced you know trio actors and uh Yaxley all these new actors you know new adult actors they still there were still some left in Britain apparently um because they cast them in this film and they're awesome yeah i agree so now they're on the road and this is the thing that they had been promoting a lot or you know it's going to be a road movie this is going to they're going to be on the road like you know living on their own and these scenes in particular were unique in that it, it's just these three and they sort of they have to hold the scenes up on their own because in the past, you know, they're surrounded by these great British actors or fellow Hogwarts students. For this part of the movie, it's just these three. And I have to be honest in saying I thought this is where the movie drags a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 most people felt that way with the book, I think. There's still a lot of information being shared around the trio. And of course, there's the big fight. Um, and the destroying of the Horcrux and Godric's Hollow, but it still felt like it dragged. Michael, why did you think it dragged? I think it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, the lack of development 
that that took place prior to this film of of Voldemort's threat to you know the Muggle world and and just why they would have to be on the run and maybe why the Muggle world is, is a bit safer than being in the Wizarding world. You know why not just go back under the protection of the Order of the Phoenix? You know why are they on the run going to all these different places around England? Uh, it it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense and well, I. It's not only they have they have a job to do. Let's not forget. So they're on the run just out of convenience because they need to find Horcruxes, and that's 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 really why they're in the woods to begin with. Is is you know it's the, they're only in the woods essentially because Hermione had to escape from the Ministry, needed a place to go immediately after finding the Horcrux, and they stay in the woods because their job there isn't finished. They need to figure out how to destroy the Horcrux. One of the earliest scenes in the woods is them trying to destroy the locket with all sorts of spells. They're unsuccessful, and thus begins sort of the trek. Like, it's not only they're in the woods because they're hiding from Voldemort. You know, they need the time and the place yeah. and the space to be able to de- de- develop the the end of Voldemort. So it's it's... It's the, it's the it's the plot it's the main beef of the film. I I, I feel like if uh, if you feel it drags here, then you're more inclined to just like the whole film. Richard, did you feel it dragged, or did, were you a fan of these scenes? I felt it dragged, but I, as I said earlier, I thought Emma Watson held this whole section of the film together. I thought, I mean, Rupert Grint was very good as well, but you really got the emotion from Emma, particularly when. Ron stormed off, and she had to choose whether she helped Harry or she goes with Ron. And you could see the the tears in her eyes, and you you believed it. And that I thought she was the sort of shining beacon in that whole section of the movie, which otherwise I thought was kind of dull and prolonged. Yeah, I I think Ron summed it up the best. You know, when he had the locket around his neck, and he was clearly angry about the lack of information that Dumbledore had provided to Harry. I kind of felt that way as a fan. You know, too that that we didn't get as much coming up to this point to really understand what was going on, mm. and, and, and that's in the why books, feel, we had so feel, much more. Yeah, exactly. And and I feel and look, I understand book to film adaptation. There's only so much that you can do, but I felt that there were integral things that were left out prior to this point that allowed this to drag maybe more than it had to. There's uh, the third change I noticed uh, between the pre-screening and the final film is there's a moment they're walking through the the tall grass when they're in the woods when they're all, all on the road and it's a fairly open field and there's tall grass and they're kind of just keep going and it's one of those I, I want to say montages it's, it's not a montage but Ron is watching Harry and Hermione kind of work together well they the scene originally there was a moment where Ron stops them and they're in the middle of the field and he says what's the game plan and Harry turns to him and says uh, we're just gonna you know keep going and uh ron says (laughs) and ron says isn't that what we've been doing like the day before like the day before that and the day before that and the day before that and 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 harry kind of he's taken aback and then hermione's like ron and 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 you know so there's some dissent there there's this just short moment where it's really i guess to help the passage of time is is what it originally was for because they they have been doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks and all of a sudden it's snowing so it was cut out, but I think it still played well because the very, very next scene is when Ron does have the locket on and it, they're in the tent and he says pretty much the same stuff. So it was condensed maybe or that scene was removed, but I think it was still fine. It's just it's one of those things that I really want to see on the, the le- deleted scene because they're in a big open space and Ron is causing problems. So it's kind of significant. Let's try to uh, get through these wood scenes particularly quickly. Um, there were four... 
uh, that I've listed here standouts. Ron and Harry's fight, which was very good. And I, uh, Richard, you had mentioned earlier that um, Dan's acting was kind of uh, stiff. But here, I thought this was his standout scene. It felt very real between Harry and Ron. I thought th- so. I thought the acting was great. Yeah. Would anyone agree? Disagree with that? I would agree. If, I almost thought they hated each other in real life. It was so convincing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that was good because the last thing you want is for that for that to be fake. And I think a lot of viewers really connected with that. Then uh, Godric's Hollow, which probably would was one of the more interesting parts of the woods in terms of action going on. Uh, we see we see Harry and Hermione at at his parents' grave, which was a nice addition, as well as uh, Bethilda being basically yeah you, know, you know turning into the snake. You could tell right from the start that she's creepy as hell. And but Harry was just so determined to get any sort of information out of her, and of course that that backfired. Well, she speaks partial tongue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, like when she when she finally does speak, she speaks a little bit of partial tongue. It's not subtitled. We don't know what she's saying. Why Harry did not just run at that point, I have no idea. Unless he was stalling so Hermione could look around. That well, was the one thing I was. Thinking. Hermione discovering that room with the blood in it and the flies, like a decaying corpse. Like it, it's, yeah, it's really. You know, I feel like there was a little bit more of that in the pre-screening, but... Uh, oh, but one other thing before we get to the dance, which I can't believe I didn't list that here. Um, when I, I had seen it twice. I saw it at a screening in London. Um, so I, like most people who saw it the first time, was jumped back when the snake comes jumping out uh, from the lower level in Godric's Hollow. Well, for the second time that I saw it, I knew it was coming. So, and I was sitting towards the back of the theater. So instead of watching the screen, I was just staring at the audience and the entire theater backed up when, and just, and just lurched when, when the snake jumped out that time. And, and then for the next few, like seriously solid 30 seconds, everyone was just laughing because everybody was so scared by that. It's such a movie. It's so common, but it still works as a movie technique. It gets you every time. Yep. One thing, Thank God that wasn't in 3D. One thing I wanted to bring up, though, was the symbol also, uh, the, the Deathly Hallows symbol. I, I felt like they kind of just made it show up in different places, but didn't really explain it that well. I mean, and the reason why I bring or it up is it shows it up on the grave. Yeah, but it was. I don't feel like it was developed that well either. You know, you saw it on Xenophilius Lovegood at the wedding, then you saw it on the grave, and it was kind of like th- this whole underlying story of the Deathly Hallows, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the animation scene, was just kind of... Where else Where else was it in the book? I mean, that it would be in the film. I feel like they touched it, they had it in all the Not moments. Not to us, to the regular viewer, it, it, it kind of moved very quickly, and... I don't know that a lot of people will catch on to it. Well, Hermione specifically lists all the times that they were able to see that they saw that symbol to Xenophilius, and there's this, it literally lasted for like 60 to 80 seconds, where he has the piece of chalk, and he draws. After we hear the story, he draws out the symbol. So it's really, the time spent, I thought, was 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 just fine on that symbol. And maybe there are more implications about that, you know, obviously Harry at one point has to discover that he has two of the three Earth two of the three Hallows already um, on his person, but that's something for part two. Going yeah. back to the Godric's Hollow section, uh, my f- one of my favorite scenes from the book was when Voldemort appeared and then had that flashback 
to when the night when he was destroyed almost. And I was really disappointed that didn't make the film whatsoever. Well, you know what's weird? Wasn't there, there was a shot when, when Harry and Hermione are standing in front of the house, the destroyed house. Harry has some kind of flash and there's like Lily's body on the, on the on the ground, like laying there's like a crib and it's turned over, like split second. Did you guys see that? I uh, don't remember that. It, it felt like yeah, it was really just a few seconds, but it looked like a further shot of Harry's parents, maybe mid attack or after they had just been attacked. let it was really weird. Let's talk about Ron returning and destroying the Horcrux. Uh, I think uh, this again was pretty funny because Hermione is so pissed when when Ron comes back and asks, asks Harry for her wand back, which was very funny. And the, the acting was just great. I, I loved that. I thought that was one of those scenes that was obligatory for the audience. Like, Ron visibly repentant, Hermione v- visibly reluctant to forgive Ron, and then some cheesy lines about, you know, want to put it to a vote? I vote we go with Hermione. Like, it's funny, and I really enjoyed it, but I, you know, what are you going to do? You're condensing a lot of emotions yep. right now, so. I am jumping a little ahead, though. Of course, Ron destroying the Horcrux happens right before this. What Did you guys like when the Horcrux gets opened by Harry, and then we see the Horcrux talking smack on Ron, and the, excuse me, and then Harry and Ron, or Harry and Hermione, the Vision, they're nude, making out, we see side boob. <laughs> uh, actually, what? actually, Eric Skull, your thoughts on the side boob? Okay, copious side boob is is the okay. So there's more there's more of this scene than there was in the in the pre-release, like because the, the effects weren't completed. So there's a shot, and they go back to them embracing, and they're actually really really making out in the. But the problem I have is that Hermione's bust is visibly enhanced, and I mean you can tell it's enhanced, or at least I can. It's not I the real. It. It's not the real deal. No. And originally, when I first saw it, it was the real deal, and it's going to be impossible for me to ever see that again. And I'm really upset about that because they've enhanced it. It looks fake. So they and it sexed took it up right out of the moment. They sexed, they sexed it, up. it up just like they did. I think it was the Order of the Phoenix movie the poster. IMAX poster. There were they, two versions. They added some. Yeah, the uh, IMAX poster. They they enhanced Hermione's chest. Or or when Slughorn was checking out Hermione. Do you remember that in the Half Blood Prince poster? No. No. Was that? Oh enhanced? yeah, yeah. He has that. He has that look. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and it's that. Yeah. Well, but um. But did, okay, so yeah. Did you guys like this? Uh, I thought I thought it came off really well. It was a really shining moment for Ron and and you know it, Rupert's acting, was, which amazes me, me it was because even better. honestly, Rupert is such a bad interview. Like you try to ask him questions and he just not cannot get uh, put out a, a comprehensible answer. But then. His acting has is so good that it's it's kind of unbelievable. It's two different people, <laughs> or that it's one per it's the same person. Any other thoughts about? Yeah, this? Yeah, I I thought this yeah. scene was good. <laughs> I liked how you know the spiders came out first, and then you yeah. know you had Voldemort talking to him about how his mother really wanted a daughter but got Ron instead, and then it transitioned to the whole Harry Hermione thing. I, I thought this scene was was pretty good. And that what are you? What are you yeah, to this exactly. to this trio? And the side boob. <laughs> and this, well, like I said, it just it took me out of the moment. I feel like it was lesser because it, I I don't think it looks like like it's real, and maybe it's not because it's in Ron's head. But I don't know. I wish they would have reduced, just kept it real. Like, come on, what's what's the? There was there was plenty of side boob the first time around. I feel like they really enhanced it. I really do, and it looks unreal to me. Well, as much as you guys would like to talk about the side boob all day, we can't. So we'll move on to. 
I get well. I guess that's it for the, this portion of the woods. We skipped the silver dough. We skipped. Oh, the, oh, you know. So okay, yeah. So, uh, but is there much to talk about with that silver dough? Well, it just. I I want to make the comment. It seems plausible that Snape would be there in the woods. You know, just out of sight. It seems, or it seemed plausible. Did you guys? Do you guys agree? Because at this point, there's so much less Snape in this film, I guess, than there is in the. Well, at this point, it's just not explained at all. But it seemed plausible that Snape had been searching for the trio. Well, I think, and I'd hope that it would be a flashback of sorts. You know, when when you get that moment between Harry and Snape, and uh, he takes a look at his memory. Uh, in in part two, I, I I'd hope that you get a flashback to this particular scene as well. Yeah. So you kind of yeah. see how he's been playing double agent the whole time. How does he even find out? Because there's no picture of the guy from Grimmauld Place, which has also got another portrait in Dumbledore's office. So how does Snape even find out about what the current location? You mean Phineas Nigellus? Yes. Yeah, he's unable to discern their situation from you know the portrait. Oh yeah, because Hermione takes um, the portrait. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Along but, with them. Yeah. Yeah, and they're talking. She she mentioned specifically being in the Forest of Teen, where she's never been before. Exactly. David David Yates specifically takes that out. Actually, he he said uh, when I interviewed him, we were we asked, you know, how do you decide what to take out, what to keep in, in terms of adapting? And he specifically mentioned that one thing: Harry or Hermione taking the portrait. Uh, they purposely left that out, so that doesn't add anything. But. But how did Snape find them? Well, well, it'll be interesting to see how they explain that in the next film, I guess. Yeah. Snape will just be like, I was watching you. With no real explanation. One other thing Harry that Hermione happened. Dancing? Yes, Harry and Hermione dancing. Uh, Dan, uh, he's quoted as saying that this, Harry Potter's never felt more real than this scene. Because it's a great song by... Nick Cave. Nick Cave, thank you. Eric, do you know the name of the song? Yeah, Oh Children. Uh, and it has a, it has, it has parentheses. Um, yeah, I, I love the song. I thought it was a perfect match. David Yates said he spent a lot of time. He went through hundreds of songs trying to find the perfect one that would give off a, a sense of, of hope, but also that there's still, you know, some trouble going on. So they're still kids, they're still you know, kids. he just, and Dan's, Dan's dancing. Like I didn't notice this the first time. You know, the second time I saw this, I don't, and his dancing is just so cheesy. Same. And, yeah. I didn't notice you know, the first kind, time either, but. Yeah, it's Dan. It's Dan Harry. It's Felix Felicis Harry, basically trying to find a happy moment. And later, I, I guess I heard somewhere that the, the trio was instructed, or, or Dan and Emma were instructed to play that scene as if it would end in their kissing. Mm. Um, because there's this great moment at the end of it where there is that tension for only the, the the tiniest of seconds, and obviously they come to themselves, they pull back, but it's not. You know, it's just so tender. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I was almost fooled. You know, as someone who's read the books and knows the outcome, I thought Harry and Hermione were going to kiss. <laughs> like, you know, they were getting pretty close. And but, but I've told this to a couple people now, and they were like, "What are you talking about? I didn't feel that way at all." I thought they would as well. Yeah, but I'm glad they didn't. Obviously, but I, I think that the tenderness is is something that's real. It just it's real acting from both of Definitely. them. Definitely. And it's just something that just I think is a is a, is one of the the biggest points of this film is just the acting from the from the kids. So next up the Lovegood's home. When when uh, the trio get to Lovegood's home and we see Xenophilius Lovegood for the first time and he well not for the first time. We saw him at the wedding as well. The second time. Yeah. Yeah. And we see the big three brothers animation which Everyone, critic or not, whether you like the story or not, everyone seemed to be in agreement that this animation was just very well done. 
Yeah, this animation was completely completed. It's like it's almost like you know they sent it away to a to another company that does these for a living. They, and yeah, they had they you hired know, a, a co- commission. They it. hired a separate someone outside of who normally does Harry Potter stuff to, to work on this, and it was inspired yeah. by uh, Chinese shadow puppets and um, so, oh. some other work as well. I mean, it was it it's, was fun to watch. Brilliant. Of course, I'm the- so happy that they. They had that completed in time for the pre-screening because it was the entire scene oh, just good. as it is. Because obviously they're not going to change it because you know it's either they have the product or they don't. You know if they outsource right. it. So. Of course, the glaring change here was Hermione reading the story, uh, telling the story rather than Ollivander, which I thought was a bit odd when you think about it. Because then it's like, well, why did they go to the Lovegood's house in the first place if Hermione had the story the whole time? Like, couldn't she have figured this out? Couldn't she have? Uh, no, she hasn't. But but she didn't. But make she that figures connection. out everything. <laughs> so so you know what I mean. <laughs> Eventually, like, she could have. So I, I don't know. Well, yeah, it, it would have been nice if they kept how it was in the book with Ollivander. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, going back to what I said before with with the Deathly Hallows and kind of you know it being rushed, Eric. You know, the whole symbol thing. I I think, and again, look, I understand things need to be left out of the films, uh, just from a time standpoint. But the whole scene where uh, Victor Crumb notices the the symbol around Xenophilius Lovegood's neck, he mentions yeah. Gregorovich. Nobody has a clue who Gregorovich is in this film. Um, you know, yeah. Harry passingly comments on him as the wand maker, and or, or Hermione. I forget. I, I think Harry says he's after Gregorovich, and Hermione goes, "Oh, the wand maker." Well. Fans only know <laughs> Ollivander up until this point. Who is Gregorovich? And then the scene, of course, you know, in, uh, what's it, Nermengard, I think is the name of the prison. People are, I, I guarantee you, there are going to be people who are lost with that scene, have no idea yeah. what's going on. You know, and, and, and the whole backstory oh, okay. with Grindelwald, you have to agree with that, Eric. I mean, he just shows up at the prison, talks to him, gets this fleeting memory out of him, kills him, and, and, and Harry wakes up, and it's like, uh, you know what? Yeah, what, what I liked about that scene. Sorry, go on. No, I'm just saying, and and you know, then you t- you go to the grave and you see the, the symbol on uh, uh, Peveril's grave, and then you go to the Lovegood home. It's I feel like people who haven't read the books are not going to follow that storyline, and the movie's called Deathly Hallows. Well, like. So <laughs> the movie's called Deathly Hallows. But like Richard said, okay, Richard brought up the point about Voldemort not being in Bethilda's you, you know, the snake jumps up at the screen, Harry or and Hermione apparate or disapparate kind of sideways like um it reminded me of that scene in Chamber of Secrets when Harry goes through the flu network and he, he shows he shoots out of the fireplace sideways. They basically disapparate through the wall out of the house. But there's no Voldemort in Godric's Hollow. And the only Voldemort we get is scenes like this, where Harry is dreaming, and Voldemort goes and interviews Grigorovich, and I think we're meant to believe it's legilimens, that, that Voldemort is actually physically reading Grigorovich's mind because he doesn't, there's no exposition. And it's short, but I don't know, I feel like the essentials were there. I mean, to me, maybe this is, like, offensive, but do you think that uh, they cast the actor who played Grigorovich as a gay man? Because he is, the, it just came across yeah, that way. To me. My gaydar went off the charts. My uh, gaydar just went off the charts. Uh, so okay, that's canon. Well, that's canon. I question your gaydar. Let's move on now to the trio at the Malfoy at Malfoy Manor. Of course, they get caught by the Snatchers right before this, um, and and uh, 
we see Dobby. And this is not the first time we see Dobby. Uh, we saw him a little bit earlier in the film. I loved Dobby in this film. I think even though this, you have a limited amount of time with him and we haven't seen him, seen him with Chamber of Secrets, I think you really get a connection with him. Like, I really was like, aw, Dobby. I don't Can't agree. say I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really? So, I, I mean, I feel like we're negative oh, on all Richard. these points, but I, I guess it's good to have sort of the counterbalance. Richard, go ahead. I'll let you go first. Well, I kind of felt cheapened by Dobby. I mean, from a CGI point of view, it was the exact same model as they used in Chamber of Secrets. It looked out of date. But you know what? Can I, can I say... I don't know about that. I No, I agree. And w- the first time we had seen him in, in a clip, I think, a few weeks ago, we were like, something looks off about him. What's What's wrong? I think they purposefully left him a bit cartoonish, I dare say. Because that way, viewers can connect with him a little bit more. He's not as scary-looking as Creature. He's a little more harmless. He comes off a little more friendly. I think they did that on purpose. I think they... And I think he actually looks different than he did in Chamber of Secrets. I, I think they did that so you felt different. more emotion towards him. He, he's a little more like a stuffed animal or, you know, a, a little a little pet bunny that you would have in your home. I'm I'm not convinced. I mean, the Dobby yeah. in the books was covered in clothes and socks and hats because he was free and he loved his clothes. And I I just think they took the same model because it was cheap and it was easier to do that rather than making a new CGI model for Dobby. I kind of felt a little bit robbed. I I don't think I don't think I I don't think I agree with that at all. Well, I don't. Sorry, I I don't think Siri. I don't think the CGI is underdeveloped or in any way. The same model that they used eight years ago on the second film. I don't. I don't feel like that's true at all. It looked just fine to me. Well, I'm not going to talk about the CGI and, side and of things, we- though. I'll, I'll. I'll talk about. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off there, um, but I. I'm going to talk about sort of what happens with Dobby, and I thought it was great to have him back because he's really one of my favorite characters in the entire series. But the free elf speech when he's talking to Bellatrix. Uh, Right before she throws the knife. Don't you dare say that was bad. Not only was it bad, I I think (laughs) people would have connected with his return a lot more had he been present in the other films. Because, you know, here he is. He's kind of like this indignant house elf, basically telling Bellatrix to go screw herself. And two seconds later, he's got a knife in his chest. So... and it's just it's it, he wasn't developed enough as a character to have him do that and to have him be dead fifteen thirty seconds later. As- don't don't Micah Micah don't blame David Yates for the knife in Dobby's chest. Blame J.K. Rowling. No, I, I, I am I the See, only I one? Am I, am I the only one who thinks that that he wasn't developed enough as a character in previous films to, to do I that? I agree to with him? you completely. But is any character developed enough yes. besides the trio? I mean, they're all lacking. They they all lack. But you just have to go off your knowledge from the books, and you have to. But not everybody has that. that. Way. Not everybody has the knowledge from the books. Well, and I'm okay. saying that if, if look how much Dobby plays a vital role in the series, even after uh, you know Chamber of Secrets, and the fact that he hasn't been around since the second movie and here he is all of a sudden in the final one it's like a nice cameo and then all of a sudden he's dead and i don't think people get the the full connection that's my point uh, well, how did you feel about his his ending speech cuz his ending speech the second time i saw this it, it, it seemed to go on for a little bit when he was he's about to die when he's, he was stabbed he's about to die 
Yeah, well, right before he's stabbed, he has oh, this that. long conversation. Okay, that... I mean, Narcissa is in on the conversation. They're talking back and forth. That was one of my favorite moments. I mean, you see him up there on the chandelier trying to unscrew it. That was hilarious. Then, and this is this is based off the audience screening, or the fan screening I went to. It was the one at the premiere, so it was a lot of fans. They Everybody was cheering during during Dobby's speech. Everyone really got behind him and connected with him. And I didn't, I didn't get that the first time... I saw the film. So, you know, the I think the fans really connected with it. And I would guarantee that many of the midnight screenings, all the fans were cheering along with Dobby. I mean, it was a great speech. It was a great build-up, I thought. But what about non-fans? Uh, I have yet to speak to them. I still agree with, with Micah. On that. I, I think that if the character was developed more, then I would have felt sadder when he did die. I, I don't think there's anything sadder than Harry holding the corpse of Dobby well, not, and and Luna coming and closing his not eyes. That. I mean that, and it looked not that. I'm real. talking about what ha- takes place right before that. But uh, so you're saying the rescue makes somehow less of an impact? No, his speech, his speech was 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 like out of nowhere. All of a sudden, he's giving the this you know being a free house elf. Uh, you know, it felt fake to me. Sorry. All right. Hmm. Sorry, I'm, well, the, I'm the Simon Cowell of of MuggleCast today. <laughs> no, no, no. It might it might be like okay. I I think what you're saying is you know, Dobby talking about being a free elf has less meaning it because does. the freedom of elves has not been touched because the freedom of elves and the independence of elves as a race is has not been touched on at all in the films. Right. No, you're as right. As it has in the books. I mean, I don't think there are too many significant scenes where Dobby is between book two and book and the rescue in book seven. I mean, maybe following Draco around in movies in book six is the most important. Um, but that subplot was was cut well, let, because he doesn't. Let's alone talk in the a little movie. bit more about Malfoy Manor. There, there was a scene though where, and I didn't get this. Maybe you can explain it because you guys know more about the making of movies. But where that hair falls on Hermione when she's being tortured by Bellatrix, yeah. what was that? The hair. I don't even know what that was. There was. Yeah, there's a hair, and it wakes her up. She comes too. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get what that was. Maybe. You, uh, just... maybe, I don't know, maybe just something to stir her. But that, that shot that when Bellatrix is torturing Hermione was another standout moment in this film. Uh, you that really, changed. you really connect with Hermione. What was it shorter now? It wasn't just shorter. There was, uh, in, okay, in the, in the, I'm going to be really quick, but there's a camera shot where we see what's on Hermione's arm. But originally there was a scene, I guess, cause it was all one shot, maybe of Bellatrix jumping on Hermione, torturing her. And then jumping or getting off of Hermione and Hermione looks physically like turns and, and holds her arm up to herself to read Mudblood. Instead, Hermione is passed out and the camera shows Mudblood and then we show Hermione and she's kind of immobilized and she's, t- she has a tear in her eye. Like she can read it, but it's not the same scene than it, that it originally was. And I think the reason was we heard Yates and Heyman talk about the the intensity and and Emma Watson talks about the intensity of her screaming and getting really into the moment and I think everybody was really afraid of showing too much so a lot of that was it seems different or was cut or they'll bump us to R yeah exactly but as long as <laughs> as long as you guys well, thought it was worthwhile then that's cool one other thing in Malfoy Manor here was uh, Peter Pettigrew I mean there was a big change here where Pettigrew doesn't kill himself Harry shoots a spell at Pettigrew to knock him out while he has the fence while he has the um, the gate thing open because Harry and Ron were sort of hiding where Pettigrew couldn't see them I was disappointed that they changed this because I think 
Pettigrew's silver hand, uh, um, registering, so to speak, the redemption was a great part of the book. And, and I, and, you know, it is, we do see it in Prisoner of Azkaban. So I don't figure, I don't know why they couldn't have continued that plot line. Uh, I don't, maybe they were fearing they would have had to have, they would have to remind the audience of what's going on. Um, but that could have been solved with a couple lines of dialogue, I thought. Yeah. Or maybe it just broke from the, the pace of the, the, the pace that yeah, they were going Yeah, because Harry's for. like, hey, by the way, I saved your life one time. Now you need to, oh, now you owe me one, buddy. And then, like, Wormtail hesitates. But then, I mean, I think seeing his own hand, like, strangled by your own hand, is is a great scene in the book because it's so horrifying. Yeah. And it would have been good in the film. Right. I wonder if, I wonder if they're not going to really do the silver hand beats a werewolf thing. Because... Pettigrew's hand, even in the first Malfoy Manor scene, when we see Pettigrew, Voldemort's chastising for not taking care of Charity Burbage, not keeping her quiet, and he has his hand and it's really out, and later he's walking up the steps from the dungeon in Malfoy Manor and his hand is hitting the wall and it's clunking heavy metal. I feel like they're really building that up, and obviously so maybe they it'll didn't come kill in him, part so two. Yeah. Part two, yeah. Yeah. They're gonna, obviously they so. have to. I don't think he'll do it with Lupin, though. I, I think they they stated that Lupin dies the same way that he does in the book, and Harry just kind of sees him uh, off screen sp- sprawled out on the table when he goes into the Great Hall. But the other thing I could think of was they didn't want to kill two people in a very short period of time. You know, to kill Pettigrew mm. and then to kill Dobby right after that. You know, maybe it's a little bit too much. Again, go, even taking the rating into consideration. I mean, I hope that's not the reason, though, because I mean, what are they going to do with the battle? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> true. That's very true. <laughs> in part two, that's a good point. That's a very good. So, point. Uh, Dobby has his big speech. Like I said, in my theater, the fan, the fan theater at the premiere in New York, that everyone ate that up. I mean, huge applause. And then, of course, the knife goes in the Dobby, and there's the scene where Dobby is being buried by Harry. Harry mentions he wants to do a proper burial, no wand work, which was good, because that's in the book. And we see him get buried. We don't see his grave, though. You know, the one that says, here lies Dobby, a free elf. elf. But I think... Um, part two. Yeah, I think we're going to see it in the beginning of part two to, to refresh people's memories. Maybe we'll see another montage, sort of like what we got in the beginning of this film. And, um, yeah, so I hope we do see that. I hope we do see that. Yeah. Was, was everyone moved by Dobby's death? Oh, by, by Dobby's death? Any tears? Richard Reed, did you cry? I didn't. I actually thought Hedwig's death was sadder. Oh, oh, we didn't even talk about that. I mean, <laughs> that was kind of a quick, quickie death. I loved how she sacrificed herself for Harry. Yeah. It that beats was the Expelliarmus line. Do we all agree that it beats the original way of dying or not? Yeah. Um, Are we too true to J.K. Rowling to I, say I that? Think, I think the movie one was better, actually, yeah. Well, well speaking of that, that scene with the, with the wands, obviously, were, did, was this similar to the book where Harry just grabs Draco's wand and takes it away from him? Because that's what yeah, happened that's at what Malfoy Manor. It was a bit of a fight, though, wasn't it? It was more of a fight than there was in the film. And, and the book, yeah, because he physically disarms him. And that's what transfers the allegiance of the Elder Wand, is that he disarms Draco, and Draco had disarmed Dumbledore, you know, the right. year previous. Right. I don't know. The allegiance of the, the allegiance of the Elder Wand is so hard to track. But yeah, it, it was basically that. So when he takes it from him physically, it seems like maybe that'll have a different explanation in part two. And then the big cliffhanger, we see Voldemort taking control of the Elder Wand. Uh, we again see Dumbledore's tomb, which is still a very odd-looking tomb. I mean, li- like I mentioned when yeah. we first saw it in the trailer, it looks like a Jenga uh, game. And the blocks are sort of set up like they would in a Jenga puzzle. And they open up. Voldemort cracks his um, cracks the 
tomb, which was which was which was cool. And then we see Voldemort go right in face to face with Dumbledore, takes control of the Elder Wand, sends the spell up into the sky, and end scene. Credits. Finn. See you at part two. There was no teaser for part two. I was kind of hoping for a, little, a sort of little teaser thing or something. Yeah. That would have been nice touch. Well, like at the end of Back to the Future, where they do that, you know, first scenes. Uh, I haven't seen no that. No surprise here, sure. though. I thought the ending was a little anticlimactic. Uh, I thought... Maybe because you Why does you everybody say that? Yeah, everybody... Nobody was because really blown away Because there was no energy. By... There, was no, like, there was no sense of, like, if Harry would have said... You know, if there was been a f- quick shot to Harry, said he has the Elder Wand, and then back to Voldemort casting it. In the, the, there was no real feeling of foreboding at the end. It was just kind of oh, shot the spell in the air, movie's over. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, uh, they they should they could have done a lot more with that cutscene, especially since I think they split it at the right point. They just they just didn't they didn't drive it home the right way. Richard, where do you think it should have been placed? The split? The split. Yeah. Well, I think if I had my way, I would have had the split as they got ca- as they got caught by the Snatchers, and then I would have left Malfoy Minor for the last for the last film. I mean, considering how much content... Of, I mean, this film was really two-thirds of the book. It wasn't really half of the book. And they had so much content that they could have gone into that I'm worried that the next film is going to be all action, no story. And this, this film is kind of... It was almost the opposite, but I wasn't convinced by the story. All right, we're very far into the show. Obviously, there's still a lot more to discuss, uh, but that that sums up the, the major scenes, and we will definitely talk more about everything in future episodes. For now, though, we're going to do a couple quick questions. We're just going to go around the table, give some quick answers. First question, favorite new character, Eric Skull. Go. Reg Cattermole. Micah. Uh, Runghorn. Richard. Runcorn. My answer is Runcorn too. I think. Uh, favorite scene, Eric. Mm, the three. No, I'm not going to say the three brothers because <laughs> that isn't acting. It doesn't take any kind of acting. I got to say the um, still the Horcrux scene. Mike. The, the ministry. Richard. The Obliviate to the start. I my mine was uh, the. I hate the. I can't pick one Malfoy Manor scene. I'm just going to say Malfoy Manor in general. Those were great. Least favorite scene, Eric. Hmm. Go. Don't go to me first, <laughs> Micah. <laughs> well, where should I start? Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. One no, that no, really bugged you. If Micah. you could pick one that had to be changed, one that had to be changed. Um, oh man. Yeah, be Warner Brothers. Be like, hey, this needs more reshoots in December. <laughs> what would what would you? Oh, man, I would say it's probably. Um, this is like a Rupert Grint interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard because we've talked about so much here. Um, Poor Richard. How about you, Richard, while we're waiting for the other two? I hated the Harry Hermione dancing so much. Oh, my goodness. It just felt Why, what wrong you about any it? levels that they were trying to imply that those two might kiss. Oh. Uh, I, well, I agree with that, but that didn't bother me. I would say the pacing of the forest scenes. If they could have they could have quickened the pace of the forest scenes, I think th- I would do that. Yeah, you know what? I have, I have the same answer as you. I don't know how, though, but because there is a lot of information going on there, particularly uh, Harry and Ron fight, Ron returning, the destroying of the Horcrux. I mean, those were big things. Uh, but yeah, I think they could have tuned that up a little bit if they had to change that. And Eric? It almost seems like they would... It almost seems like they would have to be less faithful to the book if they were going to quicken the pace any I further know. in the forest. Yeah. Well, but what's your least favorite scene? Yeah. 
the scene on the train that takes oh, place yeah. in the Hogwarts Express, there's this there's this great moment where Neville's like Harry's not here, and he says it like he's it's it's supposed to sound defeated, like even he's upset that that Harry's not with them. Well, Neville calls him it's stupid so short. too. Yeah, yeah. Hey, losers. Hey, losers. Oh, that, right. Yeah. Like he, what? What? I didn't. He's get not that. here. Because, but there's so much. It's a second. It's really a second. There's nothing to it. So I hated. That's my least favorite scene because why even film it when I I even felt that Matt Lewis's acting was trying to tell me something. Uh, well, and, you know, and, in a way, timing, it gets back to the timing that the film. Yeah, it gets back to explaining. It. it gets back to explaining why to, to helping explain that people are looking for Harry. You know, that's why they are on yeah. the run. Uh, Mike, I think you were saying right, earlier. but how do Harry's friends feel about him being missing? Is what I was interested oh. in, and it felt like that was about going to be what that scene was about. Because uh, was it even Cormac McClagan is in this film for that split second where right. he's like, "My father will be hearing about it," but it's so short that it's my least favorite scene because it, it it you almost can't even take in what does happen, and not not to mention what doesn't and should happen. Is what does happen is so quick that got a lot of laughs. Though. What were you episode. saying though, Andrew? Well, you you had mentioned earlier that that there's no. I think it was you. You mentioned that there was no explanation of why they're on the run. I mean, this this sort of explains. This helps explain why they're on the run because they are being looked for even on the Hogwarts Express. So it helps explain to the viewer why they're not going to Hogwarts. Well, I think it's not the best. No, no, but. no. I think my point was just the the severity of the situation is is undermined a bit because you don't get as much of a look into how threatening Voldemort is to not just the wizarding world, but the muggle world as well. Let's now get into some listener tweets on part one. We asked you to send these in. If you follow us on Twitter and our Twitter name, our Twitter URL is twitter.com slash mugglecast. Nydia112 writes, some parts sucked. Some parts were awesome. The seven potters, what just was just too funny for me. Hedwig's death was awful. Rosa Nasser wrote, I watched the seventh movie and found it amazing. Between our favorites, by the way, our favorite scene was when Harry and Hermione danced and when Ron kissed that man's wife. Harry J. Puck wrote, the film is definitely the best so far. Wasn't sure about the star with the, start with the Minister of Magic, but loved the creative animation. Anorexist13 wrote, uh, you, you guys have some crazy Twitter names, by the way. I love DH Part 1, although Grindelwald gave Dumbledore up too easily when Voldemort came looking for the wand. Soon to be Angel wrote, 6 out of 10 for blazing fast pace, episodic feeling, par acting, but great aesthetics far superior to all previous Potter films. Yeah, the on-location stuff was great. I mean, some of the, you know, when they were camping, like, there were some beautiful areas they were yeah. walking Andrew, around. can you talk about J.K. Rowling being a producer? Did they mention that at the junket? I heard it got kind of a non... They said there was no difference. It's what she's always done. She's just actually credited as a producer. All right. Dark Wolf 312 wrote, Why didn't they show Bellatrix using Crucio? Some people thought she was biting Hermione's arm initially. Lodeman <laughs> <Overall best laughs> Note re- said, First time I left the HP movie without feeling disappointed. I love it. Sir, Car- Sir Carnati wrote, I thought the overall movie was great, but I hate that they left out the Dudley Harry part. Three Brothers part, excellent though. Fem Gamer Bird wrote, I loved it. Best adaptation so far. I love that they included a lot of dialogue from the book, but why is Wormtail still alive? 
That's the question, isn't it? Hopefully, in part two, we'll get an answer. They would, I feel like they they had to do they had to do something so jarring that everybody's like everybody's talking about it, you know, and is going to go see part two to find out why Wormtail is still alive. <laughs> they might even do that's the big. They might even do Deathly. They might even do Deathly Hallows part two posters of just Wormtail <laughs> with a silver hand going, "I'm still alive." That's the hook for the next it's, film. You think so? It's Lauren Yvonne wrote. The film felt a, a, like a different entity in itself. I kind of can't imagine seeing six. Then moving to that, but not a bad thing. Loved it. Miss Jess wrote, surprisingly faithful to the book, the cliffhanger was deliciously cruel. Clovis is a closet Harry Hermione shipper. That's the answer to that. Yeah. He totally is. <laughs> Maria Nadera wrote, hi from Venezuela. Loved the movie. Some lines were exactly from the book. Didn't, didn't like that they left out creature story. And finally, Dresbo wrote, if this was the exposition movie and part two the action, I feel the audience is still mus- missing crucial info. This was definitely not the exposition movie because David Yates said they cut out everything that was exposition. So, <laughs> so that's our big movie review episode. Obviously, there was a lot to talk about, and we hope you enjoyed this discussion. But this is, of course, not the end of our discussion on this movie. We'll be talking about it for many episodes to come. And I'm sure lots of you have feedback about what we had to say today. So to send it in, please do visit MuggleCast.com, then click on Contact at the top, and from there you can fill out our feedback form and give us your thoughts, whether you disagreed or agreed um, with anything we had to say, and we cannot wait to read your emails and get some of them on the next show. I think we had a healthy difference of opinion on a lot of things. Might be like the first time in a while that's actually happened. Yeah. Speaking of emails, on episode 213, we asked for weird places that you've listened to MuggleCast. We got lots of answers, and they've been a lot of fun to read. So thanks, everyone, for sending them in. We ran out of time on this episode, but we will definitely definitely read them on episode 215. And finally, one last reminder. If you're listening to this on Saturday, November 20th, or Sunday, November 21st, the nomination period for the 2010 Podcast Awards ends on Sunday, November 21st. Just go to MuggleCast.com, and at the top of the page, right above our Twitter box, you will see, or right above the pumpkins, you will see a um, in very easy instructions on how to nominate us. We appreciate that very much, and hopefully next month we will learn that we have been nominated cool. in the 2010 Podcast Awards. So, can I ask one last question here before we go? If you had to rate this movie just a number out of 10, what would it be? I would give it an 8, but I fully anticipate giving Part 2 a 10. Eric? Ooh. That seems like a good double question. What what would you rate part one, and what do you expect you'll rate part two, given where you think they're going? I Richard, like, are you worried? I would give part one a three, maybe a four, purely for Emma Watson. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> part two. Uh, well, what, I kind of hope it's. Really, I'm I'm kind of expecting it to be awesome, and if it is, then I would gladly give it a ten. I mean, I want to give this film a ten, but I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even give it like half of ten. <laughs> And Eric, your answer? I'm going to give part one a 10, and I'm only going to expect a 7 out of part two. Wow. I feel like, just in general, I feel like this was the film that's going to connect with me the most, for some reason, whatever reason. I'd give this movie a 6. 6 out of 10. All right, there we go. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. It's been a lot of fun. Again, our next episode will have much more. We, we, we barely uh, scratched the surface talking about this film, so we will be back soon. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Andrew Sims. 
I'm Eric Skull. I'm Micah Tannenbaum. And I'm Richard Reed. We'll see you next time for episode 215, where we will have part two of our part one discussion. Ha <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah, that was pretty clever. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Not really. Bye. Bye. Bye.